Our Lord and our God, we come to Thee again, rejoicing in all Thy blessings, Thy protecting care, and Thine unfailing grace and love. We come casting our every care upon Thee who carest for us. Do Thou, O Lord, in Thy mercy and grace, guide and protect us in these days. And give us the victory against the powers of statism and make us more than conquerors in Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Our scripture this morning is from Matthew 5, verses 38 following. Matthew 5, 38 through 43 or 42, let us say. And our subject is taken in particular from verse 41. Whosoever shall compel thee. We have gone through the Sermon on the Mount section by section, and now we're giving attention in depth to particular words. Ye have heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you that ye resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if any man will sue thee at the law and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. Give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn not thou away. The word compel in verse 42 comes from the Persian, angaros, courier. And the word compel is angaruo. It's a word that with deep roots in history and its meaning is a compulsory draft. Just as today... Your car can be commandeered by the police in an emergency. Or your services can be commandeered. So this verse compelled has the same meaning. Now the context of this whole passage is the biblical law of justice. What is called the lex talionis. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth is stated by God to be the law of justice. That is, the punishment must fit the crime. It does not mean that because you've knocked out an eye in somebody through hooliganism, your eye is to be taken. But that very definitely the punishment must be proportionate to the crime. This is spelled out in greater detail when we are told in Scripture that if you steal, let us say in modern terminology, a hundred dollars, you must repay the hundred plus a penalty of another hundred. That it must be up to fourfold or fivefold as a maximum the restitution that is made. 
Thus, the law of justice is the law of restitution and restoration. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth with a penalty for what you have done. So you restore what you have taken and at least the equivalent or up to fourfold and fivefold. This was once common to American law as well as the law in Christian countries throughout the world. It was an excellent means of dealing with crime whenever it was used. However, this is the law of justice, of justice as it is applied in civil government. All too many people were trying in our Lord's day to make it a law of private revenge. There was a reason for this. They were an oppressed people living under Rome. It would be comparable to, say, the Soviet Union coming in and governing us. The Romans, perhaps, were better rulers than the Soviet Union. On the other hand, they were equally brutal if anyone in any way opposed their rule. It was the Romans who devised and developed to its ultimate refinement crucifixion as a punishment. Some of you have heard the tape by Dr. Truman Davis who examines crucifixion from a medical perspective. And he points out that perhaps no more refined and brutal form of punishment has ever been devised. It was designed to maximize pain. The people who developed the Roman method of crucifixion had a good knowledge of anatomy. And what they did was to develop the ultimate torture, perhaps until the Soviet Union came into existence. It was freely applied. It was especially readily applied to anyone who was rebelling against Roman rule. We know that when the Jewish-Roman War broke out 66 to 70 A.D., which our Lord predicted would take place, the Romans won with difficulty because the Jews fought so bitterly and savagely. But what had been a well-forested area of Palestine, they stripped of timber to crucify all the survivors. It was not enough to execute them that would be too merciful. They crucified them wholesale, and there was a forest of tree of crosses around Jerusalem after the fall of Jerusalem. Now, the attitude of Judea was, we're going to do something about this, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But they were not the civil government. And for them to attempt to avenge themselves would have meant the death of the country, which our Lord fully knew. 
Now, our Lord was speaking to a country that was ripe for revolution, ripe for warfare. In such a context, everything that a man says who speaks publicly is read esoterically. It is heard as though it were a cryptogram. In the Soviet Union today, for example, everything that anyone says in public is carefully watched for hidden meanings in order to see are they trying to communicate something because very often they do but very often they don't intend to and the results are very unhappy if someone sees a hidden meaning in what they say. There is a story told, and no one knows whether it is true or not, but ostensibly this uh, radio commentator in the Soviet Union was giving a highly fictionalized account of social disturbances in the United States during the 60s when we did have rioting in the cities. And... He spoke about the cities in flames from one end of the country to the other, that the entire country was in a revolutionary situation, that uh, the workers were working to overthrow the government, the troops were called in, and they were butchering people wholesale. It was a highly inflammatory account. And he went on to say that the whole of the country, the economy especially, was in shambles. And then he gave a report on the new five-year plan, which had just been completed, and said, we have almost caught up to the United States. Well, in view of what he said previously, of course, he put his foot into his mouth, and supposedly he disappeared as a result. Now, I cite that, true or not, we don't know, to illustrate how when there is no freedom, what a speaker says is read in a double meaning. And so as people came to hear our Lord, they were listening very intently to see where he stood on the Roman issue. We know that only at least once, because it's specifically told us by Luke, there were spies, spies there to hear what he had to say, whether it would be in any way conducive to the zealots or the revolutionary party. And so our Lord deals with this issue very directly here. He does not beat around the bush. You have heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now why does he say it hath been said when he's quoting from the Old Testament, from God's law. But what he does throughout this passage is to take Bible statements and whereas normally he says, it says in the law, or Moses said, wherever a passage is being misused, he says, you have heard that it hath been said. In other words, 
Here is a scripture, yes. They all knew it was scripture, but it is one that is misused. But I say unto you that ye resist not evil. What does he mean by that? Well, first of all, everyone knows that he is talking about the Romans. Because the minute he brought this up, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, he was bringing up a sentence that the revolutionists were using. They were saying for every Jew that is killed, we're going to kill a Roman. For every Jew that is crucified, we're going to get even with a Roman. And he says, resist not evil. He calls the Romans evil. He does not hesitate to do so. The word evil is thus very much to the point. And the word evil that he uses, and there are several that he could have used, is ponero from pono, P-O-N-O, toil, hard work. The evil of Rome was that it was a slavery. It involved hard work to be under foreign rule, to be taxed to support a government in Rome, to be taxed to support the people who were oppressing you. And thus he describes the alien rule of Rome as evil. He says, moreover, resist not evil. The word resist is a word that means an active, aggressive stand. In other words, our Lord shuts the door on revolution. He saw it as futile. In fact, not only did he predict it, that it would destroy Jerusalem, but as he was being taken to Golgotha to be crucified, he saw a great company of people and of women weeping because he was going to be crucified. Luke tells us, Jesus turning said unto them, Daughters of Jerusalem, weep not for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming in the which they shall say, Blessed are the barren and the wounds that never bear, and the paps which never gave suck. Then shall they begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us into the hills, cover us. For if they do these things in a green tree, what shall be done? in the dry. So our Lord, even as he was being crucified, stressed the fact that their grief would be greater in due time because they were going to resist, because they were going to turn to revolution, and it would be futile. This leads us to another point. Our Lord never counsels us, the Bible never counsels us to do anything that is impractical. Some people feel that to be Christian you have to be unworldly. Now that's nonsense. God made all things, heaven and earth, 
and to be in this world, but of God in the fallen world, doesn't mean we have to be impractical. Since God made us and God made the world, the most practical way to live is in terms of God's Word. And God's Word does not call upon us to be futile. It is a practical word. In fact, our Lord specifically forbids futile efforts. For example, in Matthew 10, verses 14 and 15, when he sends his disciples out to go throughout the length and breadth of Judea preaching, he says, And whosoever shall not receive you nor hear your words, when ye depart out of that house or city, shake off the dust of your feet. Verily I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah and the day of judgment than for that city. Again and again our Lord makes clear, don't do the futile thing. Don't witness to people who will not hear you. If you see they will not hear you, go on. We are to redeem the time. We are never to waste our time doing things and making a witness to people who are not going to hear us. I regularly encounter people who feel that they are being very, very Christian because they're spending their time doing something that is futile, such as trying to convert their neighbor who does nothing but slam the door on their face whenever they bring up the subject or trying to win someone in the family who's made it clear they will not hear them. And somehow, their persistence, they feel, makes them particularly holy. It makes them particularly foolish. Ezekiel makes a point of it. Make your witness once, and you are innocent of their blood. You've made your point. That's it. Let the Lord do the rest. There is too much emphasis today in the life of the church on futile efforts, and it's wrong. Having doors slammed in our faces is no merit. However, while we are to be practical and we are not to be revolutionists, we have a duty to resist where God's truth and God's kingdom is at stake. We must obey God rather than men. Moreover, when we obey God rather than men, our Lord tells us in Matthew 10, verses 18 through 20, And he shall be brought before governors and kings for my sake, for a testimony against them and the Gentiles, but when they deliver you up, take no thought how or what he shall speak. For it shall be given you in that same hour what he shall speak. For it is not he that speak, but the Spirit of your Father which speaketh in you. So, when we make our stand in terms of Christ and his kingdom, we are given power from God. But finally, our Lord commands them not to resist, 
because the Romans were not the problem. They were. The oppression of man follows apostasy from God. All of Scripture, and especially Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, make this emphatically clear. The route for eliminating evil begins with our churches, schools, communities, families, ourselves. And this is why, while we are, as a foundation, very active in the battle against state control of Christian activities, we first of all have stressed Christian reconstruction beginning with every man, with the totality of life in view. Judea was very upset about Roman rule. But all we have to do is to go back and read how they governed themselves just before the Romans took over. It was the period of the Maccabean rule. And what they were doing to themselves was pretty bad. Even as what we are doing to ourselves is very, very bad. Do you know that right now, West Germany, which was not too long ago the most prosperous place in the Western world, now is in real trouble economically. Why? We are requiring them to increase their military budget 4%. That's not much. In order to fulfill their obligations as a member of NATO, in order to be ready to help defend themselves in case of a Soviet attack. Well, over 30% of their budget goes for welfare. The cost of welfare comes to in dollars, the equivalent of $4,000 for every person in West Germany. If you are ill, you are given six weeks off, so you have enough time to recover with 80% pay plus benefits. It's an advantage, an advantage to be sick, and everybody is becoming sick. In fact, welfare is so good in West Germany now and in the Netherlands and in Sweden and elsewhere that these countries now are filled with North Africans and Turks and other peoples who are becoming a sizable element of the population because the local people are not working. They're on welfare. Does that tell you something about why we are getting so many illegal aliens here? They're coming to take jobs that others won't take. What Judea had done to itself before the Romans came in was to go into captivity to their own sins, to create a civil government that was very oppressive. And the Bible tells us when a people disobey God, they go into captivity to their own rulers or to foreign rulers. 
And when the point comes that the evil is such that they cry out to God, Samuel tells them in 1 Samuel 8, the Lord will not hear you in that day. The Lord will not hear you in that day. To cry out against oppressors, but not against sin, is wrong. And that's what the Jews were doing then. And that's what people are doing throughout the Western world today. Our Lord does not allow us the luxury of futility. And to cry out against the Romans, but not against your own sins, is morally wrong. And it's a futile step. Our Lord, thus, is not proclaiming pacifism here. We have an instance of the truth as well as the thorough practicality of Scripture. When people try to turn Scripture into something impractical, it's a first step towards saying, you can't obey it. You can't listen to it. It's impractical. It's beyond the possibility of keeping. And so it is that people will go to a passage like this, which if Judea had listened to, they would never have fallen. And they want to convert it into something totally impractical. And then to say, you can't believe or obey everything that is in Scripture. But the truth is, the Word of God does not recommend nor allow futile gestures and actions. Let us pray. O Lord our God, we give thanks unto Thee for this Thy Word, for its practicality, its truth, and for the fact that it speaks to our world today and our problems. Give us grace to meet these problems in faith, dealing with sin wherever it be, and becoming more than conquerors in and through Jesus Christ our Lord. In his name we pray. Amen. Are there any questions now, first of all, with regard to our lesson? No questions? Yes, Ken. Quite a question, but it's an awfully fine line between deciding how to spend your time as between doing those things which you might say are moving forward and on the other hand, putting out brush fires that are attacking what you're trying to do. And, and uh, we've seen a lot of people that get pushed off to the one side and, and uh, spending a lot of time writing in great detail what's going on and totally forgetting and moving forward. And yet it's hard to say that you could spend all your time doing these positive things that get things done because you can get nibbled, your foundations can get nibbled away and nothing will come of it. 
Yes, that's a very good point. It is difficult in abstraction to see which is the course that's going to be taken. But if we once take the right step, the next step just follows logically. Just as our Lord said, you're going to be dragged before kings and governors. At that point, don't worry. Relax. Wait patiently for him. The words will be given to you. You'll do the right thing. In other words, when we are on course, God helps us to see the next step and to do it. But if we stand back and we look at it, it's abstractly, it's hard to know which of these courses shall we follow. Do I make myself clear? We find that when we take the right step, things break providentially for us. Whether we're in a battle or not, they break providentially for us. Any other questions or comments? Yes. Um, I'm still down here earlier, this week, uh, there was a man from the Jewish, well, the Jew, head of the uh, Jewish Defense League, mm-hmm. and um, he was just real mad that Jesus said, turn the other cheek, because he said in the Old Testament they always fought. What did Jesus mean when he said, turn the other cheek? Yes. In this context, here they are, they're in a situation where there's a compulsory draft. In other words, at any time, anyone in Palestine, in Galilee or Judea, could be compelled to give his cloak, to be a courier for a mile, his wagon or horses could be commandeered, and if he talked back, he could be slapped. He had no rights in such matters against the Roman authority. He had to take orders. So our Lord said, If they compel thee to go a mile, go with them twain. Go two miles. Be cooperative. Turn to the other cheek. Because you'll get along better with someone who's going to rule you anyway. I've used an illustration over and over again concerning that. It used to be, it still can be done legally, but now with uh, more tax funds available, they have professional firefighters that they hire when there's a forest fire. But I can remember when, in the 40s and early 50s, whenever there was a forest fire, they just commandeered you off the street or stopped cars and told you, uh, we're loading you in the back end of this truck to take you up to the fire line. And they would go to a main highway and commandeer them. Now, anyone who protested really had cause to regret it. They gave them the hardest, the dirtiest work, and worked them the longest. That was their set method of dealing with anyone who objected. It was routine. So the person who acted unwilling or griped about it paid a price for it. But if you turn the other cheek, that was the uh, best solution. Now, I felt that the fire should be fought anyway, so I was ready to volunteer. But I know once on a particular occasion when 
There were very few people around. There was a, a rodeo off somewhere that everybody had gone to up, and the mountain area was uh, short of people. Together with another man, when we saw some smoke, we went immediately to the ranger station and volunteered. We knew they'd be coming after us anyway. Well, for the first few hours until they brought them in from 50 and 100 miles away, we worked hard. The rest of the time, they had the two of us just patrolling. And because we had volunteered when they brought the food around, uh, they cut roast that thick. It was thicker than the two slices of bread they put it between. And uh, the ranger said, anything you want, just to ask for. We were very well treated. Now, that's the difference. But I know what happened to some of those who grumbled. They almost worked around the clock and were ready to drop before they were told, go ahead, we'll replace you. Now, these were not Romans. They were not communist overlords. They were simply rangers doing their job, and they didn't like, in a situation where help was needed, a drafty resisting them. And they punished them. Well, that's what our Lord is saying. If they're going to take your coat from you, give your cloak also. Just be cooperative. You don't get anything by resisting. The whole context is of a compulsory draft. Does that help clarify it? Well, what he no doubt had reference to was this. First of all, many of the American Jews have been highly critical of the Jews who are under Russian and uh, Nazi domination. What is not commonly pointed out, by the way, is that the uh, Russians were killing them too when the war broke out. In fact, when the Nazis took over the Baltic Republics, they found very few Jews left. They'd all been eliminated by Stalin. And they felt that these men should have fought. Well, with what? Assuming that they had some guns, what were they going to do? It was ridiculous. They, there was not much they could have done to have fought. And many of them did survive. What we're told is an exaggerated account of how many were killed and not how many did survive. Yes? Would you say that this passage is speaking to uh, those of us who would resist if a government stepped in to take our stables away from us or what we needed to subsist on, or if they took our children away to be used as battered rams in some feudal war, or our women to be raped or whatever? Is that... It's not speaking against that type of situation, is it? It is speaking against the situation of compulsion where it is futile to resist. Now, that's the key. 
Our Lord is not counseling futility. Now, we are to protect ourselves. It's ridiculous to put ourselves in a position of uh, being open to something. I was in Washington, D.C. this past week, and uh, one of the people I was talking to was reminding me again, this was in context of some particular person, when the riots were taking place in Washington and more than a few people were killed, robbed, raped, killed, as well as stores and things burned, the appalling fact was that so many sightseers drove into the area. And they drove into the area where the rioting was going on under the insane idea that we're spectators, therefore we're not going to be involved. And uh, naturally the rioters came after them. And this one man came to an intersection. Buildings were on fire all around and the rioting mobs uh, going up and down the street. And there was a red light. And a group of the rioters with uh, clubs and things in their arms came after him in the car. And he stood there, or sat there, because there was a red light. <laughs> and... Uh, his wife screaming, let's get moving, and the kids crying in the back seat. Light changed just in time. <laughs> now, <laughs> that kind of absurdity is insane. You not only stay away from a situation like that, but you prepare yourself. Any other questions or comments? Well, if not, then we shall meet again two weeks from today.